get things rolling. There is a simple diagnostic exam that has been in use for actually a really long time. It's called the two-point discrimination exam or two-point touch test. It's kind of a simple procedure that involves touching the skin on different parts of the body with these pointed calipers that can slide to, to like different widths. And it's this way of testing if a person can discern two nearby objects touching the skin at the same time. And if they can tell they're really two points touching or if it just feels like there's only one point touching them. So what they do is they have the, point, the person um, close their eyes or look away and they press these calipers against the skin at different distances apart and then they ask him, does it feel like one or two? They, then they, the patient will report, it feels like one or two is touching my skin. And what they're looking for is like the, the minimal distance at which the patient can distinguish between these two distinct points on any, any given part of their skin. And the result is then this, this measurement of sensory nerve function. It's weird because on different parts of the human body, there are wildly different results with this. So like on our fingertips, or our, our lips, or the, especially the tip of our tongue. We have crazy sensitivity in this two-point touch test. Most of us can tell the difference between two points at just like a, a tiny little bit, like a millimeter, sometimes less. Um, if you want to play around with this and you have a pair of tweezers, you can do it. Like just grab them. You might want to wash them off. But then, then um, you can touch them to your lips or, or the tips of your finger or your tongue. It's crazy how, how small of a tiny distance you can tell there. And, and then you try it on like your shins or your forearms or your back. I had Kristen doing it with scissors yesterday just to try to see how bad it was, just like poking me. They weren't that sharp, but I didn't run with them. She just was pointing them at me. She, <laughs> but she, would, she, she was doing this, and I was just going one, one, and she, they were like three or four inches apart. I'm like, man, I'm glad they don't have this test with emotions, right? Or... <laughs> Although my wife's a therapist, so I think she's kind of running those tests on me all the time, actually. Um, but I like this idea of this two-point discrimination test because it helps us to think about the relationship between sensitivity and awareness, right? Which is an important connection to make. Like, without sensitivity, there can be no awareness, can't sense a given phenomenon, we'll have no awareness of that phenomenon. So if I touch two points of the, the caliper to my shins or my back, you know, an inch apart or so, I would swear up and down. That's one thing touching my skin right now because I don't have the sensitivity it takes to discern that, that distance. So even though the reality is there are two points touching my skin, I have no awareness of that reality. And so there's a disconnect um, between my awareness and, and reality, which, which is not a problem when you're you know, playing with calipers touching your, your skin, but a lack of sensitivity to some realities can do a, a lot of damage. So like a, a father who has a huge temper and, and, and yells at his kids a lot, but he has no sensitivity to the impact that this is having, then he, he lacks an awareness then of the damage that he's doing to his kids. And that damage is reality. But he has no awareness of that reality. You ask him, he's like, the kids are fine. Or, or a woman who like, talks about herself all the time, say, and never listens to her friends. And, and she has no sensitivity to that's what she's doing. And, 
she doesn't see what it does to the people around her. And, and she may end up struggling with friendships and just blaming it all on the other person all the time. And, and it fosters this disconnect because she has no sensitivity, so she has no awareness. And so there's a disconnect with reality. Without sensitivity, there's no awareness. And this can disconnect us from reality and cause all kinds of problems. Um, and all of us struggle with this. All of us lack sensitivity in different aspects of our life. We, all have, we call them blind spots. It's the same thing. That can cause a lack of awareness and disconnect us from reality. And one of the th- kind of foundational teachings of Jesus is this idea that we are not stuck in this lack of sensitivity. The sensitivity can be learned and improved. I mean, in our physical bodies, maybe not so much, like whatever the um, touch test says is what it says, but in a spiritual or emotional or psychological sense, or you could say that on, on the soul level, we have the capacity to change and grow our sensitivity in ways that can deepen our awareness and connect us to reality. Like you ever buy a car and it's like a maker model that's completely new to you and you never really noticed those cars before and then you bought one and now you see them everywhere? Has that ever happened to you? Like it, and it's not that the number of those cars has changed on the road. It's that your sensitivity to them has changed when you, when you bought one. And so with this increased sensitivity, suddenly you have a new awareness of those cars and this awareness has brought you closer to reality of the number of those cars that are on the road. This is kind of a simple way of thinking about how it works. And this, this capacity to increase our sensitivity to a given phenomenon, it, it's, it's not just about physical things. We have the capacity to change in our sensitivity and grow in our sensitivity to all kinds of things, including our sensitivity to God. And the way that um, our own lives are impacting ourselves and others around us in the world. And in part, this is what discipleship is all about. Increasing our sensitivity to God and ourselves and each other and the world around us. And with that increased sensitivity comes an increased awareness of reality itself. And hopefully then, a better understanding of of how to live peacefully within that reality. And sort of the Jesus way of doing this of increasing our sensitivity to God's self, other and world, and our awareness then of reality. The Jesus way of doing this is through relationships that are characterized by love. And this is what we've been talking about these first few weeks in Eastertide, living in such a way um, that the wounds of love are visible in our lives, right? Self-sacrificial love. Or um, love not as you complete me, but as you have, have me at hello, like you keep showing up infidelity, especially in the broken places, especially with the least and the lost and the lowly. And we're going to kind of continue this idea today in John chapter 10. And this discourse that we're probably all familiar with about um, these sheep who have a sensitivity to the voice of their shepherd. And this whole chapter, we just read a section of it for today. 
all of chapter 10 of John, it's all about this, this sheep idea and this sensitivity idea. And the whole thing comes in response to this controversy in chapter 9 where Jesus is at the temple. It's the time when he, he heals the man who was born blind, and then they have the big, the big problem, right? It's the, it's the time where his disciples, disciples said, this, who sinned that this man was born blind? Because that's, that's how it worked in their world. If somebody had a physical um, malady, that, that meant somebody somewhere had sinned. Some grievous sin had, had occurred. Was it him or was it his parents? And, and because they thought it was like that, that's why he wasn't allowed in the temple or, or the synagogues. He was perpetually unclean and so kind of locked out of the life of the people of God. And so Jesus healed him, heals his blindness, restoring his access to God and, and community, but he did so on the Sabbath, which is a clear violation of the law. And so the leaders attacked him. And so he's kind of responding with this, this metaphor. And he actually, he turned the tables on them. He accused them of spiritual blindness, of their own lack of sensitivity to God's action in the world. And because they had no sensitivity, they had no awareness of what was really happening, that God was working through Christ. And, and so there's a sense in which he's accusing them of being completely disconnected from reality. And the impact that they were having on vulnerable people like this blind man. And, and in fact, he says, you're the, you're the blind ones. We see this over and over in all four of the Gospels. Jesus tried to get people to embrace their own capacity to grow in their sensitivity to the voice of God. The presence of God. The, the action of God in the world. And, and part of this involved questioning their own certitudes, right? And, and Christ's way of doing this usually was just to say, come follow me, like sheep follow their shepherd. And then where he would take them was into close proximity with people who lived on the margins of their society. Mother Teresa talked about this one time. This is one of those quotes that's kind of burned into my brain. She once said, my call is not to serve the poor. My call is to follow Jesus. I have followed him to the poor. That's like, I mean, if I ever get a tattoo, that's going to that's gonna be it. And a little, little picture of Mother Teresa with it. I figure that, that works. This is a deep insight. If we follow Jesus, he will lead us to, to the poor, to the left out, the left behind. He's always bringing his disciples into contact with hurting people and in so doing increasing their sensitivity to the plight of those on the margins does it over and over forces these guys in some situation where they had to choose between their purity codes and their religious taboo, taboos and some hurting person that Jesus put in front of them and that Jesus would usually go stand with the hurting person and and kind of reveal the, a new reality in in this symbolic way at least a new reality to them, that, that God is actually near the brokenhearted. And then he would ask them to kind of forego their need to be right and choose to love this hurting person in, instead. And those who followed Jesus, would, they were constantly led into close proximity with the poor and, and the marginalized, and so they began to gain this new sensitivity to the voice of the divine speaking through Jesus. And a new sensitivity to what their religious practice was actually doing 
to a lot of hurting people. And along with that new sensitivity and that new awareness that God was in Christ, um, they, they connected to this, this reality. When they looked at Jesus, they, they realized, like, God has, has shown up in our world in this man somehow. He's come to us disguised as a human being. And, and this human is revealing deep truths about reality that we, we had been missing. That was their, their posture. In this chapter, John 10, in this little section of it, it says that um, they came, um, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The festival of dedication is Hanukkah, um, which was the big celebration of the Maccabean Revolution. We talked about this on um, Palm Sunday. It was sort of like their American Revolution. It was about 200 years earlier, and they had fought this battle and gained some of their own independence. And it was not a huge holiday. You could observe it at home, but Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and it says the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are Messiah, tell us plainly. It's the only, or the, um, only time in the Gospel of John where Jesus is directly asked if he's Messiah. It's implied elsewhere, but here it's a direct question. Stop beating around the bush. Tell us plainly, are you Messiah? Although they're there, this, this festival of dedication or Hanukkah thing kind of signals to the reader they're really kind of asking, are you going to lead a revolution? Because that's what, that's what we want. Um, and in Greek, there's an idiom here. Like, idiom is like a, a saying. Like, you're driving me crazy. That's, a, that's an idiom. Literally, it says in Greek, how long will you steal our lives from us? Um, and the reason that it's important is because it uses that word, life. It's often um, translated, how long will you keep us in suspense? Which is, is the meaning of the phrase, but it doesn't use that word, life. And John's using the word life on purpose because in the Gospel of John, belief and life are always held together, always. There is no belief that does not get displayed in your life. Belief and life go together for John. Think of John 3.16, right? Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. And, and so this idiom connects belief and life. It's very important. It's, it's what they say. How, how long will you... Continue to steal our life from us. Are you the Christ? And Jesus answers them, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify, they speak about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Essentially, he's saying, you, you should know already, you clearly lack sensitivity to read, to hear. You have no awareness that I'm doing all of this in my Father's name. You've seen who I am. You've seen how I live. You, you know what I've done, but you don't know what it means. My works testify, but you don't, you don't get it. And he actually says it twice. You do not believe. Same phrase. And it's not just rational belief, like mental assent to an idea. It shares actually the same root as the word faith. The Greek word for faith. Belief means trusting enough to follow this voice. So belief isn't purely mental. It's about the trajectory of their lives. And to make this clear, he gives them this metaphor. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. 
I know them, and they follow me. That's belief. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then here's the next line is the one that gets him in real trouble. He says, I and the Father are one. This is a new reality. Back then in his day, they didn't um, tag their sheep's ear or, or brand them. And they didn't drive them like on horseback with, with, or with dogs or with a four-wheeler like you would nowadays. Shepherds called to their sheep. I mean, pretty much every family back then had a, a few sheep to provide wool for clothing. And folks in little villages all over the place would, would combine their sheep into a flock. And one, one guy from the village would be, be the shepherd, maybe 30, 40 sheep. And there might be a bunch of other flocks from surrounding towns on the hillside. And when it was time to move, they just called this call to their sheep, something they had done the entire life of the sheep, and the sheep would know the call. And they would just kind of follow him. And it's kind of ironic because they accuse him of not speaking plainly, right? And it's, he's saying, in essence, like, I, I can't make it any more plain than I have. You just don't have a sensitivity to this call. You're following some other shepherd's call. You, you don't discern my voice. You lack an awareness, especially of this new reality, this, this oneness I have with my father. And, father, and so you don't believe. There's this author, Ken Bailey. He's a scholar who lived in the Middle East for like three or four decades. And he once wrote that when a shepherd got a new addition to their flock, their sheep were always coming in and out of the flock, the new sheep essentially would have a little nervous breakdown when it entered the, the flock. They're very, you know, anxiety prone anyway. But the only thing that the shepherd could do to help this new sheep from through the nervous breakdown is essentially just to, to speak to it constantly until it learned the shepherd's voice, and then it would settle down. And eventually, once it knew the, the shepherd's voice, they, it'd follow him anywhere. This is, this is what Jesus has been doing with his disciples. He's keeping them close. They know his call. And when he speaks, his guys come running. These other folks have a nervous breakdown, right? They don't, they don't understand what he's even doing. They run from it. And they're asking this question. He's already answering the question with his life. And he has this expectation. It's kind of a weird part, but he has this expectation they kind of ought to know his voice. But they had no sensitivity, right? And so no awareness. And so this reality that he's come from God is just lost on them. I and the Father are one. They have a nervous breakdown at that one. And part of Christ's frustration stemmed from this fact that they, they should know. And Israel's story is, is what should have given them this sensitivity. It's what did it for Jesus. When you think about their history. Jacob made his fortune in sheep. Remember that story? He's working for his father-in-law Laban as a shepherd, and Laban says, how do you want me to pay you? And he says, just give me the spotted and colored sheep. But he know how to, knew how to breed sheep, and so he bred more spotted and colored ones. And Laban comes in, he's like, this is not fair. He's like, all right, well, we'll switch. And I'll, just give me the white ones. And then he bred more white ones, because he was Jacob, right? And this is, this is deep in their story. Jacob, who was renamed Israel, was a shepherd. 
Think of Joseph. He was out tending his father's flocks and ends up tattling on his brothers. And in revenge, they sell him into slavery. He winds up in Egypt, in jail, interpreting dreams, and then rises to the right hand of Pharaoh, saves his whole family. But before he was anything else, Joseph was a shepherd. Think of Moses. He stumbles on the burning bush. What's he doing? He's tending sheep. He's a shepherd. Think of King David when Samuel comes looking for him. He's the only brother he couldn't find. He, he was out in the sticks tending sheep as a, a shepherd. I mean, that's Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David. This is like the Israelite Mount Rushmore here. This is all their biggest leaders. All of them were shepherds. This is not an accident. And then you got the prophets who explicitly use this image over and over. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among, uh, when they are among their scattered sheep. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be their shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy and pay attention to how he will destroy them. I will feed them with justice. This is a messianic text. The Messiah will be a shepherd. They're like, tell us plainly if you're a Messiah. And he's, he's going on about shepherds and they don't get it. They have no sensitivity to the story. This is the shepherd who, who seeks the lost, who brings back the lost, who binds up and strengthens the weak and destroys, destroys the powerful by making them eat justice. That's rough. And so he says, like, my sheep know my voice. And when he does this, he's just drawing on Israel's story, the kings and the prophets. It's like, look, this, this is how this works. You should know this. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice, and they believe, and so they follow. And because they follow, they have um, zoene ionion in, in Greek. Zoe means life. Ionion is difficult to translate. It's like a huge controversy in New Testament stuff because it's usually translated eternal or everlasting life, but that's problematic because Ionion really isn't about time. Um, it, it's, or at least it's not about duration. It's, it's more about quality of time, a certain age almost, or a certain kind of way of being. Dallas Willard famously once said, he, he thinks Ionion should be rendered the eternal kind of life right now. I give them Ionion, a life that's flourishing and constantly challenged, unsettled, and then renewed, and joyful, and challenged, and settled, and then, and then unsettled, and renewed, and joyful, and it's just this cycle. Now, here's my warning. It's easy for us when we read this to side with Jesus and call ourselves the good guys in the story, right? And think, and think, you know, these other guys are the problem. I think we should at least entertain the idea that we have a lot in common with the Jewish leaders. I know I do. I mean, this is just part of the human condition, right? We'll do almost anything 
to keep from facing any reality that forces us to question our own attitudes and actions. Anybody feel that? Um, but if, if you follow Jesus, if you actually live in obedience to Christ, you, you, you quickly realize his voice always leads us um, to places we don't want to go. And places, I mean, that just end up sort of messing with our settled beliefs about reality, even about ourselves. If you hang out with Jesus, he just constantly pushes, pushes, like calls our lives into question. And at some point, we have our little nervous breakdown, right? We call it deconstruction or a crisis of faith or a dark night of the soul. We have many names for them. They're super important. In fact, they just come over and over at different seasons in life. And the sad reality is that more often than not, when the, when the big ones especially come, um, what happens at this point is most people pull back. They sort of retreat to their last settled position and build a little fortress that, in a sense, holds God at bay. I'm always amazed at, by how easy it is to cling to an old belief that requires no change or sacrifice rather than to open up to a new truth that requires this painful self-critique. I mean, it's kind of humiliating. After all these years of trying to be a disciple, it's still true for me. It's much simpler to close our ears and just lower our sensitivity to, to Christ. Because Christ is going to lead us to the margins, and it kind of sucks on the margins, you know? It's like harder out there. It's much easier to just try and dull our sensitivity than to embrace a whole new awareness that messes with reality for us, changes our view of reality, right? We would rather do almost anything than have our reality shattered our worldview shattered, and then have to reorganize our lives, usually around love. But we do have this capacity to grow in our sensitivity to the voice of God. And because we grow in our sensitivity to have a greater awareness of how our lives impact the world around us. And I really believe, and I don't think I'm overselling it, I think this capacity is deeply tethered to the very meaning of life. We are here in this world as human beings. We are alive for a purpose, which is at least to some measure to learn how to hear the voice of God and grow in our sensitivity to the Good Shepherd and to cultivate an awareness of the content of what God is speaking to us and to be responsive in the moment to the call of God in our lives in a specific place and time. But in terms of how it works, we, we mostly have this backwards. You know, as Americans, we're, we're, um, we think of things super individualistically and often um, experientially and therapeutically. And so we seek out religious experiences that are, will be therapeutic for us, that will help us feel better or fix us in some way as individuals. And we want to be able to say, like, God spoke to me, I had the Spirit this experience, and now I'm, I'm, I feel better. But it's not the, the promise. The promise is this zoe ionion, this eternal kind of life 
now this perpetually renewed life that comes through kind of loss and rebirth, the cross and resurrection. That's why we tell the story in Easter. Like the way that she followed the shepherd for so long that they just kind of, they just kind of begin to trust, okay, I don't know why we're going through this gully right now, but the voice is there. I'm just going through, through this, right? And it's almost like an, like an instinct. They just sort of naturally follow because they followed for so long. But to those who lack any sensitivity to this voice, the voice is a monster. And so for his disciples, part of how you could tell they were listening to the voices that their shepherd is constantly messing with their settled religious beliefs. And, and when people try to reel him back in, he's like, you have no sensitivity to my voice. I'm leading you to the kingdom, but you're blind to it. My sheep over here, the ones you despise, they're hearing my voice. And you know why they hear my voice? Because they follow me around. That's why they know. It's not because they had some big religious experience. They follow me around, and I keep messing with their beliefs, and they just keep following me so they know my voice. And once they know my voice, they're mine. They're really mine. Nothing can snatch them out of my hands. And this is the metaphor he uses for his whole project. And so that's really our task as disciples and as churches. You pull together in community. We encourage and support one another as we try to follow this voice. We come together. We tell the story. We practice kind of the movements, the rudiments of our faith. And, and we try to grow, we try to foster this increased sensitivity to the voice. And then, then we go about our daily lives and, and just try to follow Jesus and find the broken and hurting ones and try to learn to love them. And the, the implication is, if we don't follow Jesus around, we'll never really learn to hear this voice. And the whole thing looks like foolishness. That's what Paul called it. Because without a sensitivity to this voice, we have no awareness of what God is up to in the world, and we have this disconnect with reality itself. And yet, we have this capacity to grow in our sensitivity to God. And most of the time, how we grow in our sensitivity is, is just to rope up with other believers, with some community somewhere who who tells the story is part of why we call, um, follow the church calendar at Redemption. So we, we're forced to tell the whole story every single year. It's not just like Tim's favorite passages that get cycled over and over. We, we discipline ourselves, tell the whole story every year. We join um, with a community like this one that, that embraces essential Christian practices like baptism and communion, like um, Sabbath keeping, tithing, weekly worship, daily prayer, community, solitude, peacemaking, and, and becoming paired with the outcast. We join with other followers. And, and a big part of how we actually know we're, we're following Jesus is that we become kind of obsessed with the poor and the broken. They, those who follow Jesus are constantly chasing after the least and lost and, and the lowly. And when they catch them, they don't try to fix them. What they try to do is learn how to love them. And this almost always jacks with their settled faith, right? It's, it's unsettling. Like the gospel will really get under your skin. 
It calls into question the way we've ordered the world. And it's irritating, but also kind of like beautiful and sweet and raw, but really broken, you know? Zoene Ionion, that's, that's it. It reminds me of this great line um, Oscar Romero, the martyred priest, once wrote. He said, a church that doesn't provoke any crisis, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What gospel is that? That's pretty good. I read that and I think, man, at least we're doing something right. This place unsettles me. And I think if you'll rope up with this place, you'll begin to increase your capacity um, to hear the voice of the shepherd and to accept change and growth. And I really think over time it puts us in touch with a deeper reality, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Now, I, I really think it's good news. You're not stuck with, you know, it's not a two-point touch test. You're, you're not stuck with the sensitivity you have now. You just listen to this voice. You rope up with other believers and things, things start to happen. And reality it, itself becomes transformed. There's this great story about when the, um, in Palestine, when the British were kind of ruling over that area, there's a, a lot of riots and stuff. And when that would happen, they would, one of the ways they'd punish people, they'd go round up all the sheep and put them in this huge pen on the edge of town. And then that, you had to come pay a big fine to, to get your sheep back. And one day they had done this and this, this little boy shows up and he had, he's like, I got my own sheep. And he had the money. He actually had the, the fine. And the guys were kind of laughing at him. They were making fun of him and, like, have fun getting your sheep. And so this little kid climbs through the fence, and he starts just walking around the pen doing his call. You know, every shepherd had their little call. And he finally found one of his sheep. And this, so the sheep starts following him. He's, like, barely taller than the rest of the sheep, but he's making that call, right? And so he found one, and he just kept walking for hours all through this pen, and he knew his sheep, so he'd look, turn around and count them, and when he found them all, leads them to the gate, and the guys are just standing there looking like, how did you just do that? And they, didn't, they just opened the gate and let him pass and go out, lead him on. That, that's the image that sticks in my mind. That's, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And it's just the weirdest thing. It's in the midst of everything else, but there are these sheep who know the voice. That's us. That's what we're supposed to be. And it, it takes a real commitment and it messes with our settled realities because it leads us to the margins. But it also leads us to, um, to Zoene Ionion, to this life that is unstoppable, everlasting, but like a, a life that is eternal already now. That's the promise. Let's pray. Oh God, we, um, we confess that we so want to do this, but, um, but what a struggle it is for us. And how many other voices we listen to But I pray that you would 
convince us all that we have this capacity to change our sensitivity to your voice. A voice that comes to us through the Spirit, it comes to us very often through the, through the voices of other people, especially those who are hurting. And that with that increased sensitivity, there, there comes an awareness of what our lives are doing to the people around us, to the world. And that if we can see it and embrace it, that you'll connect us to reality. And so I pray that we would hold on to this image, God, and that you would use it to kind of work us through our habits and patterns. Here in Easter Tide, as we try to catch hold of resurrection, I pray that we could be listening to your voice. Help us, please, as we do. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do it is the ushers will um, release us row by row, and you can, you'll be offered a, a plate of bread in, in the cup. You take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond however you'd like to respond to that. Um, say amen or I will remember. The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus be- was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after he, he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to all his disciples, disciples and said, this is, um, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup And he passed it around. They all drank from it. And he said, this cup is a new covenant, a new deal, a new relationship. In my blood, blood just meant life. A new relationship with God that's that's made possible by my life. And he said, when you gather, every time, eat this bread, drink this, this cup, become made out of the stuff I'm made out of, and then go out into the world and and be salt and, and light. And so this is why we receive communion every week. This is also why we set no limits. Anybody who, any struggler who calls on the name of Jesus can join us at the table. So um, will you pray with me as we bless it? Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?